Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He would have been 22 or 23 when he was deemed too violent and too dangerous for the provisional IRA. Something like 27 murders have been attributed to him and his kind of splinter Republican organization. When he had a, a lot of deep thinking time and found whatever version of religion he managed to be able to square himself up with. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He's the convicted terrorist and self professed killer involved in up to 27 murders. But border fox Desi O'Hare is also a devoted husband who practices yoga, prays to Our Lady and meditates every day. So who is this complex character who runs one of the landings in the notorious Portlaoise jail where he's serving a sentence for attempted kidnap and extortion? And how can he manage to show two extreme faces to the world? Today, I'm talking to journalist Eamon Dillon, about the life, the crimes and the oddities of Ireland's most ruthless terrorist. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So we had a picture of Desi O'Hare in the Sunday World this weekend. He was on a visit to a hospital where he's getting some treatments Um, He's obviously a prisoner in Portlaoise Jail. He is top dog on his wing, um, a model prisoner, but an intriguing character because, you know, on the outside, he is pretty much a self-professed psychopath. And, you know, would you call him a serial killer if you could take away the veil of republicanism from him? I, I think there's little doubt about that. I mean, I think it's something like 27 murders have been attributed to him and his kind of splinter Republican organization. And that was all in a, in a relatively short period. Mm. Um, he, he was in prison between 1980 and 86. And then there was a pretty nasty internecine feud between a kind of a three-way fight between um, former INLA people. And his was a, a Monaghan-based group. He's originally from mm. Keady, South Armagh. And there was, there was quite a number of people killed. Now, he, he, they were, he was also involved 
in murders of members of the security forces police in UDR in the north and had been a member of, I think, the provisional IRA, but switched in uh, 1979, according to some of the archive material. And that is very much, it was disciplinary issues that he wasn't really toned the line. He was seen as a bit, you know, uh, a bit too loose, um, too ready for, for violence and wasn't really... Um, too dangerous for the provost. Yeah, he wasn't submitting himself to military discipline in that regard. Yeah. He wouldn't necessarily follow orders. And you consider at the time, like then he would have been what? He would have been 22 or 23 when he was deemed too violent and too dangerous for the provisional IRA. Now you said he, he grew up in Cady. That's where he lives now when he's not in prison, obviously, uh, with his wife in a very ordinary bungalow in the countryside. Um, you know, pristine gardens that are looked after and the house is looked after and seemingly completely ordinary existence. But uh, he's still back where he, where it all began, I suppose. And that's where he feels most comfortable. Katie kind of almost straddles the border, I think, doesn't it? It's one of those areas that, you know, the border zigzags around it. So back in the day when he was growing up, it must have been an area of extreme republicanism. And that's where he got his nickname, the Border Fox, from, that he was successful in avoiding um, both the Gardaí and the RUC and the British Army and whoever else was chasing him at the time. He knew the area well and he had, you know, quite a couple of scrapes. Like he was, I think he he was shot in the hand and leg in one incident. His car crashed into a herd of cattle, ended up in a field and his passenger was killed. Mm. Um, That that kind of after that particular instance, he, he, he spent, I think, six or seven years in prison. Uh, and that was, and, and it's when he came out in, in 86, 87, that's when he kind of led his own faction and kind of really cemented his reputation because already the INLA with the likes of uh, Mad Dog McGlinchey had already a reputation that outstripped the provisional IRA in terms of their bloodthirstiness and the lengths they were willing to go to. Like, it was, they would, like you know, yeah, looking back now, I mean, you know, we've been talking about the, the Kinahan Hutch feud and talking about the savagery involved and, and the, the, you know, the terror that was instilled. But it actually pales into significance, to, you know, in relation to what the likes of, you know, the, these, these offshoot mm. Republican factions are doing. I mean, it was absolutely terrifying. And these guys like McGlinchey and O'Hare, like, they were presumably coming out of families that were, you know, extremely staunch Republican, but... Had they come out of, I've spoken to a lot of people, particularly in recent times, because it seems to me the passage of time, people in the north are now talking about all that traumas they witnessed and everything. But was it that close to them, the troubles? Did they lose parents, perhaps, or grandparents? Did they see awful, horrific things very close up? And did that form them? It's quite possible. As far as I remember reading, um, O'Hare's mother, I think, spent six months in prison for Republican activities at one point. So, I mean, it, like he would have grown up steeped in that tradition. Yeah. Um, like he was 16. Anti-establishment, obviously. Yeah, and yeah. And, 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 and you're tied into that area, like that South America area has, a you know, a reputation for being, you know, um, independent, let's say, you mm-hmm. know, <clears throat> certainly being anti-establishment, regardless of whether it's it's the, you know, Belfast or Dublin or London, like they don't want anyone telling them what to do. So, I mean, you, you had that streak of, of, um, I suppose, we, I mean, we've often used the term border bandits. And and we've seen again how, like, some of those, like, most effective paramilitary units for the IRA, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the units that would say would have been run by Slab Murphy or people surrounding him were highly efficient in, in, you know, taking on elements of the British Army and certainly there you see. And then 
after the Good Friday Agreement, they continued in anti-establishment practices, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of selling diesel and tobacco and stuff like that. I mean, it wasn't a matter of... Because it's become their quietly. living. It was all they knew how to make money out of, really. Well, I mean, there was people smuggling, you know, corrugated roofing, like mm. in, in the 50s and 60s. So, I mean, it was always going on. Like, whatever, mm. once there was a border and once there's a price difference, there's, there's a job for smugglers. And, and that was, it was a long tradition there. And it, it preceded the Troubles and it's, it's continued since the Troubles as mm-hmm. well. So that, that's, that's not really a surprise in that sense. So, I mean, you know, the board of Fox would have grown up with that kind of sense of, of daring. You know, I suppose initially he would have had support or felt he would have had support of family and, and neighbors and, you know, uh, you know who, who would, even if they disagreed with what he was doing, they were never going to betray him to the police or the establishment, possibly out of fear, mm. but as much out of their own disrespect and hatred of, of, of the system that they weren't going to hand over one of their own if... Sure, if they felt that you know it needed be, they'd look after him themselves. Yeah. So yeah. there would there'd be no question of that. So he would have he would have grown up with, I suppose, you know, that sense of security. He can get away with more mm-hmm. than what other people would have felt they could. Now those kidnappings, and of course the famous. I mean, I'm just trying to work out what age he was when he kidnapped Doctor John O'Grady. Well, that, was, that, was, that was in '87. '87. So he would have been. He would have been 30, 29, 30. He's so young. Yeah, and, yeah. He, and he, would, he wasn't that long out of prison from serving another sentence. Now, before we even get into yeah. um, into the O'Grady kidnapping, there was, as part of that kind of infighting with the INLA, he was he was the chief suspect behind, or his, his gang or his section, I think they were called the, the Irish Revolutionary Brigade, and they, they, they had kidnapped a guy called Tony McCluskey. And his, his body was found with um, his ear and his fingers chopped off before he was shot dead. So he had established a serious, you know, reputation for reckless, you know, terror-inducing violence that, you know, that you weren't necessarily going to get a quick death if you crossed the path of the border fox. It was, you know, it was something Mutilation to be, it was something to be mm-hmm. seriously concerned about. Mm-hmm. So he had already built up that sort of modus operandi of removing body parts as such of... It, it, certain, it, it certainly looks that way. And I mean, yeah. like he's, you know, like, I mean, he, he gave one interview, I think it was to Vincent Brown in the Sunday Tribune um, uh, at some point in, in, in his life. And, and he, he pretty much uh, confessed that, yeah, they'd been responsible for up to 27 murders and justified it as being part of the struggle against colonialism and oppression. Mm. And, mm. you know, so he, he had that whole, I suppose... The, the architecture of the, you know, the, the philosophical architecture of the Republican mindset, like to mm. justify his actions. So, I mean, that, that certainly would help people sleep at night when you've done terrible things, but you've done it for the right reasons. And in his crimes and those 27 murders that he admits have been involved in, were they all political as such, I mean, justifiable in, in any which way, or were there some of them wanton? There was, some, no, what, uh, there was definitely, um, there was one of them where there was, there was talk of a member of, of, of um, a rival faction, the INLA was singled out and he was shot. And it wasn't so much because that, you know, he, he, was, he was a genuine rival or had done something on them, but it was the fact that he was good looking and apparently had a, a bit mm. of a romantic liaison or had had aspired to a romantic liaison with the wrong woman, and that was one of the reasons he was killed. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to describe that as political, but, yeah. you know, again, it was and part of And I'm sure many of, of them, he can, he can, you know, he can, he can settle in his own, own mind as being political. Many of them, obviously, you know, murder, we're not saying that some murders are okay and some aren't. I'm just wondering, was he sort of also somebody who could take a pot shot? He obviously wasn't 
a sort of a drug user maybe in those days, or maybe he was, I don't know, but he doesn't appear to have been in those days. There wouldn't have been quite such an easy access to drugs. So this is all just personality driven rather than... Well, I suppose the drug is power as well. I mean, if you're from from South Amman and you're in that area, Mm. I mean... I mean, it must be a huge driving force to be thought of as, you know, you're the number one rebel out there. You're, you're the guy who's really the, at the cutting edge of the fight against mm-hmm. the oppressor. You're, you know, you're certainly, you know, it, it's a prize to, to go after and the power that comes with it. And, you know, the idea that you're able to click your fingers and, uh, you know, the, the power of life or death over individuals. Mm. The... Um Kidnap, obviously, of John O'Grady, which was probably the one that most people will really remember uh, the Border Fox 4, and people of a certain age will remember this whole incident as it played out in the media. So he was released in 1986, and he fell black immediately into the INLA and Dundalk at that time. Um, some people say he had an intention to leave the country with uh, his wife, and he did have a daughter then. But instead, he decided to conduct this kidnap, extortion, armed robbery in order to make money. Was it for the INLA at that stage or was it for to fund his own, uh, you know, retreat out of Ireland, perhaps to start a new life? Only he can say that. But one way or the other, it wasn't O'Grady who was actually the target. It was his father-in-law, wasn't it? Yeah, Austin Dara, who, mm. um, as, as is mentioned in the podcast you did with Father Brian Darcy, the Sunday World columnist and well-known priest, he, he Austin Dara, I think it was a, was a dent, or sorry, he he did a, a radio show with, with Father Brian, and so it was reasonably well known, and there was publicity about I think a pharmaceutical company he was involved in, that you know, he was a wealthy it, man. it was yeah, it was an ex- yeah. extremely wealthy by Irish standards, I guess, in yeah. in, in the nineteen eighties. And and they went to what they thought was his house, but hadn't realised that he'd, he'd basically he'd give, handed it, he'd given it to his daughter, who was married to John O'Grady, a, a dentist. And so he was kidnapped. So the gang took him and it went on for nearly, I think, three weeks. Mm-hmm. And he was moved around the country. He was in the you know in a shipping container in Dublin somewhere, and then he was in Cork, ended up back in Cabra. Um, there was different messages being left in churches around the country, and there was a real. Yeah, there was. I remember our house in in County Kildare being searched, like at one yeah. point, like you know, everybody's house was getting searched in, in all sorts of areas. Like you know, it was the only other time that actually happened was uh, the Doctor Harima kidnap in Monaster mm. Evan, like, which is in the seventies, and we had our house searched then as yeah. well. Oh, God, like you know, must have been on the well, on the radar. Uh, no, I think I think it was there was there was there was literally. Uh, like two guards and a soldier and the soldier stood with his gun pointing at the house while the two guards came in, walked around, went into the attic and that happened on on two occasions. I think they just went from house to house to house. So it was 1986, yeah, so I would have been 12 and I remember it being on the news. I remember being terrified and the name The Border Fox, finding it very frightening and people were being urged to check their sheds, to check their garages, you know, to report anything unusual the manhunt was going on around the country. And at some point, um, my mother had to drive through the Midlands at night. I can't remember exactly why, but I do remember exactly that she made me go with her. <laughs> and I was sitting in the front of the car, terrorised as we drove through what, from memory now, was kind of boglands uh, at night in this little rattly old car. And, you know, I was expecting the border fox to jump out at any point. Now, he probably wouldn't have wanted the car or, or us. But yeah, it was very much in, you know, in the ether of of the country at the time. It was the top of the news the whole way along. Was he going to live? Was he going to die? It was extraordinary that he did live for such a long kidnap because obviously usually 
those kidnaps that become chaotic will usually end in death and, and the gang abandoning them. But um, O'Hare has ended ultimately in a shootout. Yeah, there, there was um, that was in Cabra. Um, that whatever at the time, like I think Father Brian was on his way down to Cork with a million and a half of of used sterling. In, Anyone in, who in hasn't his heard it should listen to that episode. <laughs> what episode number was it? Episode sixty four. Episode sixty four. It's, it's the inside. It, it's a fantastic tale uh, yeah. from Father Brian about how he was like he was literally driving down to Cork in this little Peugeot with the seats taken out and seven suitcases stuffed full of um, used sterling that was going to be traded for the life of John O'Grady. Um, His fingers had been cut off at that time, John O'Grady's, and and they'd been left in the cathedral. Found in a church, Mm. yeah, in a cathedral. Um, And Father Brian was the the go-between at this stage. So when he arrived at the Silver Springs in Cork, um, two separate groups of Gardaí were waiting from one of them jumped out of a hedge, I think, and slightly surprised the other. Anyway, and just to let him know that... um, you know, it, it was over in that sense. That, uh, but he still went into the hotel. He was waiting for the phone call. Martin O'Connor was the guard who was shot and, and I think seriously injured at the time. Um, whether or not, uh, whether or not um, the border fox himself was in the house, they're not sure. But if he was, he made his escape. And it was. It wasn't until three weeks after that he was caught. So I mean, even those three mm-hmm. weeks, even though John O'Grady had been rescued and had you know, been brought to hospital and all the rest, there was still an active manhunt and there was still that sense of terror that you had this kind of, you know, you know, extremely dangerous character who who, who was on the loose. Uh, and it, it came to an end in Erlingford. Uh, there was there was um, they, they had information that he he might be leaving a safe house and going down a certain road. And whatever way it, it, it happened, it was a, I think it was a, a single uh, guard inspector kind of stopped the car, <clears throat> and Desi Hare was driving, and his his passenger, uh, sorry, well, his passenger was obviously in the passenger seat, and as as the uh, as the the guard inspector leaned in to speak to him, a shot was fired at him, and only because O'Hare pulled away or the car moved away, it mm. missed him. Mm. But in the meantime, they switched seats. And when they ran in then to a, a, a there was a, there was a barricade set up by by the the army and they just opened fire in the car. They had pretty much they were given the order open fire. These are two armed men who've already made an attempt, and they concentrated the fire on the driver, who was now wasn't Desi Hare. He was killed. Desi Hare was seriously injured. He was hit multiple times. I think there was reports at the time that his arm was hanging off, and you know he wasn't he genuinely wasn't expected to survive. Mm. So it, it was quite a it was a dramatic end, uh, like to uh, um, I suppose to, to a saga when you think about it, it had lasted six weeks, um, and you consider the amount of terror that had been instilled in, in, in the in the whole community. I said nineteen eighty six was actually nineteen eighty seven. So after that, he was jailed for forty years for that kidnapping, but in two thousand and six, he was released on on license under the Good Friday Agreement. But maybe <clears> before we come to that, we should just say that behind bars, he did sort of become religious as such. He found some spirituality and perhaps that's based on the fact that he survived that incredible gun attack that he shouldn't have. Uh, a little bit Reservoir Dogs, perhaps. You the know, second time, when you think about it. The second time, yeah. exactly. And yeah, he um, also befriended a criminal by the name of Eamon Kelly behind bars and he would have been the first criminal who was actually done for importing cocaine into Ireland. In the in the 1980s, he was jailed for 14 years after he tried, he attempted to begin a sort of a route between Miami and Dublin, 
a, a human mule route um, through the, the, the flights, obviously. And he was caught, he was jailed. And together they became really, really close friends behind bars. I think they shared a lot of interest in their political idealism. Their uh, fact that they both um, managed to compartmentalise maybe their violence and they were men of one woman, both of them. You know, family men who were dedicated to their wives throughout their lives, never seemed to stray or there was never any evidence and either of them ever wanted to look outside, which is unusual really for criminals of their status because they tend to be alpha males who do tend to, you know, like to have a number of relationships and can often juggle two or three mistresses and a wife and, and manage to get away with him. But that, anyway... That would be the, the low stress threshold that yeah. I'd like to talk about. <laughs> Indeed. But anyway, you got out in 2006. Now, you were working with the Sunday World at that stage and um, you tell us he, what happened he, next. Well, he'd, he'd actually been in and out um, by that stage mm. um, a couple of times. He was down in Glencree. Uh, he was which coming, was, getting parole or something, was yeah, he? Yeah, he was getting temporary release from Castlery Prison. Like, he, he had been released from the high security in Port Leash. Actually, even before, you, you, when you talked about him um, living a kind of an austere monk-like life, he actually took a vow of silence, which he kept up for, I think, well over four years, if not longer. How bizarre. Uh, during, in, yeah. during that, that, that sentence during, during for that the time, yeah. like in, in the early, I think, I'm not sure exactly when now, but I think it was in the 90s, but he spent something like uh, four or five years at least um, not speaking to anyone. Now, he was, you know, he was still operating as normal. Um, he, he was, I think he was in the base, what was known as the base, which is the kind of the, it's the the basement cells in the E block. Um, and the only other person that was there during that time would have been Brian the Tosser Meehan, right. who also had kind of uh, separated himself from Gilligan and the gang. Um, and at some point then decided he was going to go back into the, the main population and from that day on, I don't think John Gilligan came out of his cell again on E-Block, but that's a, a different story. Mm. But uh, but yeah, no, and, and like he was producing these these paintings. I think one Dumbrell had three of them um, hung in his cell. Like, you know, it's, it's a, you know, when you think about it, it's kind of bizarre. Like, you know, probably Ireland's most dangerous prisoner, Warren Dumbrell, who was ringleader of the, the, the Mountjoy siege in 97. Anyway, he appreciated uh, the Border Fox's artwork. Spiritual artwork. There was definitely, I think there was some of it turned up in a, an exhibition of prisoners' work in, in somewhere in Dublin around that time. I remember going up for a look. So but, what uh, was Glen Cree? Glen Cree then is a, it's a religious retreat. I'm not sure. I think there was, was, there was a centre for reconciliation as well. Uh, they, they were involved in helping people talk through kind of the troubles and mm. I, I think I think even I, I, I'm not sure the, to be honest with you the full work it's a reconciliation centre right. it's, it's aimed at kind of strengthening kind of uh, you know peace in the north and so I, I mean taking part in that I obviously was going to help his release um, like he rejoined the INA he came out of the base I think in 1998 and basically was back on the back on the, the dissident block and he was you know and I think it was yeah within a couple of years so then he became leader the of the INA the Good Friday agreement was 96 96 yeah and, and he would he would have joined he, he would have rejoined the INA shortly after that yeah, because you know, he, he be, probably wanted to be seen as a political prisoner absolutely so he could get yeah, out, he had some chance then because like, yeah. I mean he was serving a 40 year sentence as it turns out he got out just under 20 years he served 19, so I mean, in that sense, it worked for him. Yeah. Um, but like he, he, he was, um, like when he initially went into prison after the O'Grady contact, he was he was totally isolated. Like the, the, the certainly the provisional IRA didn't want him, and the INLA didn't want him either. Mm -hmm. So I mean, he he was on his own. So and this was obviously the time then when he had a, a lot of um, deep thinking time, I guess mm -hmm. you know, and 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 found whatever version of religion he managed to be able to square himself up with, as well as doing his artwork. So. 
So then he he was getting this this um, these TR moments uh, when he was in Castlery Prison. He was in the Grove, which is a kind of uh, the like house a little housing estate inside the prison walls, where it's all about kind of the idea of step down. You're getting people to to getting used to living a non institutionalized life again. They can cook their own tea and dinner and mm. go to the bathroom when they want or whatever. Put on the kettle, sit in the kitchen, sit in the sitting room. You know all all this kind of sense of living in your own home. So he was part of that. He was he was getting out. He was paying visits, you know, to his wife. Going, going down to Glen Cree. Um, and then he was he was released from his life sentence on license. Uh, like everyone on, on a life sentence, or no, he got, he, he, even though it's four years, it's, it's, he'd still be on license. Mm-hmm. So he, he would have been, he would have been out, I think, nearly two years at this stage, uh, but he still have to get permission to leave the country and he applied anyway to so go to... So you're talking about 2008, show you? 2008, yeah. yeah it's then when he, he looked to go on a foreign holiday to Medjugorje. So, mm-hmm. which as you know, is a place of... Uh, Catholic um, pilgrimage where Our Lady appeared on the hill just outside this little um, village in Bosnia. Um, and a, like it's a, it's a huge place of pilgrimage. Lots of Irish people, I'm sure, are very familiar with it. Yeah. So we, we had word. He got there, myself and photographer. We, we <clears throat> went out there and we spent the day uh, not getting anywhere. The hotel you're supposed to stay in just looked like a little, I don't know, kind of a, a rundown ski lodge or something. You know, mm. there's no sign of life. Um, so we're kind of like it's an L-shaped little street. Is what is Medjugorje? There isn't much to it. So we sat in different coffee shops, like all day long. And explain uh, those jobs. And I mean, well, you're, you're, I, you're, I, I understand them for the listeners. When you're you're you know you you go with sort of a sense of excitement that you're gonna get. I mean, you're not going to you're looking to photograph somebody in an environment which will explain, and obviously we do the words with that, but you get a photograph of the likes of Desi O'Hara and Medjugorje and all of a sudden it brings to life this whole story of this spiritual journey that he's on and is it the truth or is it, you know, is he going to go back into criminality or is he genuinely found religion? So ultimately what you want is eyes on the, the prize. You want eyes on your target. And as the day sometimes wears on, and you're not seeing them. Yeah, you can yeah, sort of you're, feel you're, deflated. Yeah, and and to be honest, while you're sitting there all day watching everything, because you are watching everything, and it was relatively quiet, we got to see another side of Medjugorje. Which is what? Well, nearly all the all the um, the nice German cars that people were driving in Bosnia, German registered cars, essentially, according to some people, I eventually got to speak to, were stolen. And right. this is the local well-to-do people who were buying these cars. They didn't even bother re-registering them. Um, while myself and the photographer were sitting in our car at one point, there was a knock on the window and it was two two women offering uh, money, or sorry, offering sex for money. No way. So, well, you see, what? And, but like, it's the same in any of these kind of holiday resorts. Like, I mean, th- there might be lots of pilgrims going, but like, they need bus drivers and taxi drivers. Mm-hmm. They need people to push the wheelchairs the and all the rest. So, might be into that. So, well, look, there's obviously business there. I so it was a different that, side. Damon. That's weird. And I just remember one individual, like, and you're kind of thinking, like, why is Desi Hare coming here if he isn't religious? And then you see this guy with a, a serious scar. I don't know what it was from the war or what. Um, and he, he, he went from uh, coffee shop to coffee shop. Like, I, I'm sure he noticed those, or he, whether he did or not, he didn't pay any attention to us. But everywhere he went, he was treated like royalty, like a table was immediately moved and a new fresh um, tablecloth was put out and there was hand kissing going on and bowing and scraping and then he'd move on to the next coffee shop. So The local I, dog. I, you, just, you just wonder what's yeah, going on yeah. in, in, a, in a place like that. So we're in this situation and this, this is all very interesting. It's, but it's interesting what you see when you're looking mm, properly, when you're yeah. actually looking. I mean, those surveillance jobs can be very boring, yeah. but you have to keep your eyes peeled or, at all times. Or sometimes you can just be getting a bit kind of 
like um, I suppose hypersensitive and that everyone's yeah, involved yeah, 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 in something yeah. they're not supposed to be. So yeah. every, <laughs> everything I just said may not be true. I don't, but uh, but anyway, like we're, we're sitting there and the next minute, the photographer says, uh, he's behind you. And I'm sorry, pardon, what's that? He's behind you. No way. <laughs> so he was literally standing about five foot behind me and he'd gone into this shop, a little kind of kiosk that was, we'd been kind of having a look at it earlier and it was all sorts of different versions of uh, Virgin Mary statues. Like, you know, there was glow-in-the-dark ones, there was, there was, there was, there was um, you know, traditional blue and white statuettes. They were, you could get them, you know, the size of your thumb. And to, your name to, on them. To, to life-size, to, you know, super life-size. Um, you know, there was neon versions. It was all this kind of, all this absolute tat, to be honest yeah, with you, you know, yeah. but it was all, again, aimed at selling it to, to the thing. So anyway, there was a bit of a, okay, what are we going to do now? He says, well, look, I'm going to move the car and we're going to go here and we're going to go and we'll get him when he comes out. So after an hour and a half, he hadn't come out. And this is a little shop that is the size of, you know, a kitchen in a regular semi-D. We say, there must be a back door. He must have spotted us and given, given us the slip. So I went for a little walk to see if I could see anything. And he was still there. He spent an hour and a half about in there and he came out with a little plastic bag with his wife, Claire, and just continued to mooch. And like he spent, I'd say he spent an hour walking 50, 60 meters going into all the different little shops and so on. Browsing through all the Just neon browsing, Virgin Marys. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and, and picking up little little bits and pieces here and there, a little, like, I can't remember exactly what he had. He had but he, I just remember, I just remember the little white plastic bag he had. Mm. And uh, he, later on, there, w- there was one bar and he went in there and he spoke to a couple of people there. Now, whether that was prearranged to meet them or not, I, I don't know. Didn't, it, it's hard to know. Mm. But there was, again, you know, they didn't look like pilgrims to me but we never found out who they were right and we, we just we just weren't able to really but figure an amazing, it out amazing amazing like amazing scoop like really to get uh, Desi and, O'Hare and, and we ran it holy terror like I think was, was the headline really? that came up with which yeah, is, yeah. Was, was a good one alright but I, I suppose it, it shows like how far people had kind of moved on that in a way they'd forgotten about the the six weeks of terror that he kind of he inspired back in 1987 and here we are you know, in, in 2008, like, was that 21 years later? And he's just, as you were saying earlier, just in this very ordinary looking. Serene look, looking. Like, you know. He's serene just, looking, I find yeah, him. And, and, you know, and the wife by his side. Yeah. As now, she has been throughout. We did notice while he didn't seem in the slightest bit stressed, he did have a habit of looking over his shoulder. Right. Which did, you know, kept us on our toes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like at times. So, like, you know, maybe he's not as serene as he, as he likes to give the impression. Like, but I mean, I mean, you, you probably have heard more recently, I think, about his, his lifestyle now in the prison. He's into his... Oh, yoga. He does yoga all day, every day. He's, you know, meditation. He is, um, I think he's still a very spiritual person. He's still a very, he's still somebody who speaks a lot about, you know, you were mentioning earlier how he was talking about these foreign oppressors in Ireland. And it's, it's more than just republicanism nearly with him. It's this kind of uh, sense that... Ireland is a mother, a spiritual being, and that these oppressors are kind of the evil coming in and people like himself are put on earth to, you know, protect this being that is Ireland. This It doesn't yeah. really inspire you with confidence that he's fully rational, does it? Oh, no, he's, he's not, definitely not fully rational, but, or else he's just a deeper thinker maybe than you and I. But, I mean, certainly speak for myself, that wouldn't be hard... But yeah, he is very zen. He has asked for the television to be removed from his um, cell. 
he is in charge of one of the A-wings in the prison, as in he's the top dog, everybody respects him. The prison officers have no problem with him. He's a model prisoner, very polite, very nice to everybody, to the extent that when prisoners come in to Port Leash that wouldn't be the kind of regulars in the prison system, one of them being Jim Mansfield Jr. Now, he was employed by him uh, in regards to the reason he's in prison at the moment. But nonetheless, he would be put in with Desi so as Desi would kind of keep an eye, look after him. There's been other prisoners that are maybe de- there in Port Leash for health reasons or for other reasons. And um, they wouldn't usually be in amongst people like that. And he's very nice to them and looks after them and tells them to come to him if they have any problems. Like Maintains a nice, calm atmosphere. Sounds like he should a, be running a crash. Like, like you know? Literally, he's. Yeah. A, this is why I find him so fascinating. Like, he's this sort of seemingly, he's two faces, hasn't he, really? He's the ultimate two faces. And that's why I wonder, is this somebody who is an actual, you know, psychopath? Is this exactly what he is? Are we seeing it uh, in our own lifetime and somebody who is... This has the ability to, because they say psychopaths learn behaviours, so they learn how to behave in that rational, zen-like fashion. And then the murderous lust he has, obviously, is satisfied through the portrayal of himself as being this Republican. This this, this warrior monk or mm. something like that. Mm. I mean, like when he came out of prison, in, in like when he was coming out of prison, I guess, in 2006 and, and finally released then, like uh, up until, like when when was the kidnap? The I mean, kidnap he, he went into prison. W- so he's 60, let me just think. So 2000 and, so when you were in Medjugorje with him, 2008, 2008 been, what, yeah. in his 40s. Yeah. Or um, early. And then like in 2012, he was a pallbearer for Eamon Kelly. So yeah. this is a guy, you know, having served his time, is and he was very much mixed, in his 50s he's mixed up in criminality. And so he's still using his reputation or or he's allowing people to use his reputation to collect debts. I mean, we, we did that little piece there um, last week about, you know, the likes of Barry Young in Sligo using celebrity and forces to get yeah. his money. And he, he had like uh, Mark Desmond, the guinea pig, collecting 500 euro debts and so on in Sligo. But it was all part of a kind of a strategy to inspire fear. So, I mean, if, if Desi O'Hare comes knocking on your door, you're going to pay the debts. I mean, and that was, I think how he was being used. And he seemed quite happy with that. If you think about it, like it would have satisfied his power. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he still like, you know, he stayed in touch with, you know, a whole variety of people, despite his, you know, outwardly, you know, having turned his back on all that violence. And and then as we know now, uh, you know, was quite happy to go along and be hired by Jim Mansfield to try and secure money back. Yeah. You know, and, and involved in, a, in a, an extremely frightening, you know, kidnap plot where, you know, one of the people who gave evidence against him had to be on the, the witness security program. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, know. because so in 2012, when Eamon Kelly, and I mentioned that they had become friends in prison after he got out in 2006 through 2008, I suppose, up until 2012, Eamon Kelly was operating after he was uh, released from prison from the cocaine sentence he got, he came out of prison and became this sort of mentor to figures in gangland. And he was the fixer. Eamon Kelly was the man. He had the paramilitary links, the criminal links, and he had this sort of maturity within that world. And he was mentoring first Martin Marlowe Highland and Finglas, um, and later his underling, Eamon the Don Dunn, who took out Highland to take over his, uh, his turf and his reign. And he subsequently mentored others and was the guy who gave the go-ahead for Eamon the Don Dunn's murder. He was the connection between all the criminals here in Ireland and Christy Kinahan. He was the last, really, of those 
you know, gangland mentors, mediators, whatever the overall term would be for them. And he had a confidence, Kelly, about him that he could see down any threat. And when the real IRA boss, uh, Alan Ryan, who was going around collecting debts from everybody and demanding money with menaces from everybody, when he knocked on his door and asked him for money, Kelly went and spoke to O'Hare and said, what do I do in this situation? And O'Hare said to him, hold your ground and make sure all your men hold, your gro- hold their ground as well because, uh, you know, Ryan won't be around for long enough and if you show any weakness, he's going to come back for more money and more money. So Kelly held his ground. He was under threat from Ryan and was sort of fearful, was certainly not doing his usual meetings in pubs locally. He was meeting people offside and he was a bit worried. But when Ryan himself was murdered in 2012, he had become, Eamon Kelly felt any threat against him was gone. And he got back into going to the bookies in the morning and walking his dog in the afternoon. And sure enough, age 65, he was shot dead by a threat he didn't realise, which was the kind of, you know, the the what was left of that real IRA group seeking revenge from, from Kelly. But O'Hare pulls in and, and becomes the, the, the chief mourner at the funeral, which was attended by family members and some undercover journalists and cops were there as well. And there was a couple of eyebrows raised when O'Hare took to the altar and gave this oration about his friend and talked about how devastating it was that this murder had occurred to such a great champion for Ireland. And again, it goes back into this big romanticism thing about basically how... Kelly was this martyr for Ireland and, you know, it's compartmentalising again, isn't it? The the criminality separating completely from this romantic notion of of Ireland. And uh, yeah, that was 2012. He was he was there in 2012. So the 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 kidnap in the um, in the Mansfields, I think, happened in, in around 2015. Um, and at that point, obviously, he was being hired as a as a heavy by, by Jim Mansfield. Yeah, Jr. or even he was franchising out his name that mm. he didn't, like, you but know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't even have to turn up, <laughs> I'd imagine. Like, it turned it up enough. he did, him and Wacker Duffy, mm. and they were the ones who were strong-arming, they were the ones who, who the court heard were really the ones who were kind of, you know, coming in with the fists and all the rest of it. And uh, yeah, I mean, he's a wiry, fit guy. And even coming up to his 60s, he is able to instill that fear still. Yeah, well, it's more coming up to his 70s. He'd be yeah. 67, I think, um, fairly soon or is already. Really? So, I mean, yeah, but he always, I mean, any time, like, I've seen the pictures of him and even the time I saw him in, in Medjugorje, like, I was surprised how well he looked. You know, he didn't yeah. look like somebody who'd spent, you know, uh, 20 years in, you know, and, and some of that in poor condition and somebody who had suffered multiple, you know, gunshot wounds himself. Yeah. Like, you know, he was moving around quite Just freely. yoga so. and meditation and, and yeah. romanticism does for you, I suppose. Yeah, they've been disassociated, disassociated from reality obviously helps as well for stress. Now, when he was caught that. in relation to the kidnap on the Mansfield property, he just pleaded guilty. I think he realised he was caught, um, you know, bang to rights. There was a feeling that because he'd committed the, this crime while under license of the Good Friday Agreement, that he was going to go back to have to serve the rest of that 40-year sentence, which in actual fact, Declan Wacker Duffy will be, if he hasn't already been transferred to England, because he was released under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, but he had to serve out the rest of his sentence because he was caught committing another crime. But for some reason, the Border Fox managed to fall between 
two jurisdictions or something? I'm not really sure yeah, exactly I suppose, yeah, why. I suppose Waka Duffy had the, his sentence was outside of this jurisdiction. Okay. So even if they're going to re-release him, they'll have to do it from there. So if they've, if they've said, look, this, this system or it's, it's activated, it, it'll go back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think in terms of like whether or not he'll be recalled like to Portlee's prison, I think will depend on how he's getting on in this sentence. And I mean, and it's up to the, it's, it's generally, it's, it's up to the, I suppose, the, the, the prison authorities if, if they can, if they want to reactivate his sentence. I think they decided that they weren't going to do that because I was following it for a while after, you know, he was caught. It was quite sensational that he was one of them that was caught down on the Mansfield property that time committing that crime. And yes, it was. And then it was officially kind of said they were not going to reactivate the sentence. There was a a reason for that. He got seven years, I think, for the kidnap and he would serve that. But um, he would be released at the end of that sentence, which I think is maybe coming up next year. Yeah, yeah, it should be next year. He'd be due out. And he he actually, he dropped his appeal against the severity of the sentence last year. And he basically got a warning from the judge that, you know, don't forget the powers that the Court of Appeal has. We can actually increase your sentence. So I think that was, so a, did, a, that was okay. a message that yeah. maybe seven years considering your, your record wasn't enough. Um, I think like it, the, one of the grounds of his appeal was that they were saying, well, look, he's been, he's been sentenced because of the reputation that's gone before him of what he, so he was being essentially sentenced for crimes mm-hmm. that he's already served time for. But, uh, you know, like... <laughs> It's it, anyway. Look, I mean, yeah. So he, he'd be out again, and I mean, you know, when you're listening to, to Father Brian talk about it, uh, you know, when he got out in 2006, like he talked about how himself and John O'Grady weren't happy at all. Mm-hmm. Um, like Father Brian was talking about for, for years afterwards, there, there was there was something mentioned in the doll at the time that somehow he was playing Desi O'Hare on behalf of the guards, which he said was completely untrue. He was he was very much in there as an honest broker uh, between the family and, and O'Hare. Um, and he, he was being harassed for something four or five years. He talked about, you know, attempts to run him off the road, his car being interfered with down in Mount Argus, you know, when he was driving down and back across the border and being followed by, you know, unknown mm. vehicles and all, you know, and he said this went on for five or six years. So, you know, he, he didn't, he doesn't feel like, he you know, that, that, like he certainly yeah. doesn't feel that, you know, mm-hmm. Desi Hare is a guy who's going to, you know, turn over a new leaf. Like, he, he just seems irresistibly drawn to it. Like when you, when you consider how long and what he'd been through, and how long he'd served in time. The idea of getting back in with these kind of, you know, these rump dissident groups who are immersed in, in criminality and taxing drug dealers if not directly involved in drug dealing themselves. Like, why would he do that? You mm-hmm. know, especially when he was, he'd, you know, he'd, he'd done one or two interviews when he talked about, you know, just getting back to work as a builder and that, you know, he was turned his back on that sort of thing. And then he's getting involved in, in pretty grubby stuff. I mean, I don't know how you square that with your romantic Republican no. view of life when you're, you're basically you're just getting involved in, in, in civil wars between grubby gangs. Mm. Well, he does. And uh, as I say, I think he's due out next year. So I wonder, will he ever do another interview? I would be fascinated to talk to him, I have to say. Um, yeah, no, I would. I'd find him a bit scary, but um, I'd love to just sort of try and drill down into where he's coming from with all his yoga and his spirituality and his whole idea of being so calm and, you Write know. Write a letter. Uh, well, do you know where he is? <laughs> I do. <laughs> right, well, listen, thank you, Eamon, Dylan. Thanks, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review 
or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume the Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.